this idea that uh, you know the only way you can scale is through you know pure digital distribution or, or something like that is you know pretty pretty nonsense uh, and in a lot of verticals I think impossible you know when it comes to different sectors of, of the the African economy I mean the reality is that these are you know trust based societies right and and the the social fabric that exists is you know far more ingrained in people's day-to-day lives than what you see maybe these days in, in, in the global north. Welcome to The Next Frontier. I'm Nicole Dunn, co-founder and COO at a venture-backed African startup. I'm a VC investor turned startup operator, passionate about unlocking untapped entrepreneurial potential in Africa. And I am Brian Carney, a three-time entrepreneur, nonprofit founder, and angel investor based in the U.S. I am excited about connecting capital to entrepreneurs solving the world's toughest problems. Join us as we change the narrative on startup investing in emerging markets and help bring the yearly African VC inflows to $20 billion. Daniel, the first thing I wanted to ask you that I was doing in my research is you were going to one of the top universities in the world and you dropped out to do this. You could have made more money staying in the university or doing VC in the US. You have the skills. The skills are transferable. What made you go into the African startup market? And I know and I know it can't be the money side because you also signed the giving pledge. So what was it? What what made you dive into that? I would say, and I definitely do want to caveat that uh, as a you know twenty year old uh, college dropout, I certainly did not deem myself you know particularly qualified to do anything uh, when when I got started. You know what I what I would say, I, I I did have a background as a software developer, so at least I could code and I could you know make uh, websites and 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 basic apps and stuff like that. But you know not not particularly a savant to that either. But you know I think what I what I did have was a very adventurous spirit and curiosity. And, you know, it was actually my time spent uh, doing a study abroad program in Egypt, where I happened to be learning Arabic of all things at the time. So uh, not anything particularly relevant to uh, what you would consider to be a, a typical, you know, say startup founder career. But um, I think that in a lot of ways is, is where, um, you know, the best opportunities come from in these kind of offbeat path trajectories. And so, you know, in my time in Egypt, I got to know some of the local shopkeepers in the neighborhood where I was staying, and through them realized that they had this complete gap in terms of actually getting goods to restock their stores. So the the, the typical shopkeeper has to actually physically leave their store, uh, travel to the other side of town, buy the goods themselves, arrange their own transport, bring them back. And this wastes a lot of time and costs a lot of money for these shopkeepers. And it's a, it's a, it's a real big uh, pain point and hassle that kind of affects the entire supply chain and the local community that relies on that shop to be able to get their, 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 their essential products. And so for, for me, that was a real aha moment. And I think also, certainly in, in retrospect, exhibits what I've come to characterize as the most interesting problems to to focus on, which is, you know, yes, I'm incredibly, you know, grateful and fortunate to 
I've, I've uh, you know, grown up in the U.S. I'm, I'm from California originally, and and so you know, have a lot of friends who work in Silicon Valley, and and you know, definitely have uh, you know prestigious and, and well-paid jobs. But if I just kind of look at what kinds of problems these companies are solving that you know some of my friends in Silicon Valley work at, it's it, it's either you know very kind of you know, minute optimization types of services where it's like, okay, we, we help do, you know, email advertising, you know, 0.2% better than the competition. And, you know, because, you know, email clickbait advertising is a big business uh, in the US, sure, you can, you can, can make a decent amount of money if you have an algorithm that, you know, increases conversions by 0.2% better than the competition. But, or you have that group, and then you have this other group, which is, you know, kind of people doing Uber for dog walking types of types of companies, which, uh, you know, are not actually solving real problems for humanity, right? This is just kind of solving problems for the 1%. That's more of a reflection of the fact that you have a lot of this talent and these resources that just like, haven't found better places to go. And I think a big part of how do we how do we kind of unlock and, and, and how do we actually ensure that the resources and the talent are going to where the world most needs them to is by kind of building these bridges and, and kind of, you know, in my case, traveling, kind of getting off the beaten path and, and kind of recognizing that, wait, you know, there are these, these, these enormous markets that are out there. So in our case, you know, small mom and pop store retail in Africa is over $800 billion a year and, and yet is still entirely run on pencil paper with no deliveries and no restocking and no digitization, you know, happening to, to, happening to, to, to support these small businesses. And yet, at the time that I was getting started, there was there was nothing uh, in tech that was that was really happening, you know, for these stores. So I think, you know, being being in the position that I was in, which, uh, as I said, completely unqualified to do most things, I, I would have, you know, sure, if I got lucky, you know, and applied to, you know, a job at, at some of these big prestigious tech companies or consulting firms or stuff like that, you know, maybe I would have been able to. Uh, to get a job like uh, like a lot of my, my my friends and 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 fellow peers, but at the same time, if I hadn't you know taken taken that job at McKinsey or at Google or whatever, I'm sure they would have had a thousand other kids right behind me who would have taken that job and done you know just as well, if not better. And so you know from from my perspective, the 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 opportunity to kind of go down this path of of, of kind of true you know adventure and, and and true kind of unknown of you know when I when I got started, I was like okay I. I have no clue, you know, if, if, if this is going to go anywhere, uh, if this is even the right thing. I mean, the business, in effect, you know, pivoted quite a bit by the time we got to actually certainly, you know, the model that we have today. And so, but, you know, I, I, I knew it was going to be interesting and I knew that, uh, you know, I was going to learn a lot from it and that, you know, ultimately would take me to places that I, 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 I never knew existed otherwise, um, uh, you know, at least professionally. So I think, you know, for me, that, that that's certainly was the, 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 the huge motivating factor early on. And I would say it continues to be what excites me every day about uh, the business we still have. It's an amazing story. I'm so curious how you explain that to the people around you, these friends that are going off down the predictable path, right? You're now making this crazy decision to drop out of university. I guess that was becoming more and more popular at the time, but you're going out to solve this problem that most of your peers and family can't relate to. What were some of the reactions you got at that time? There were definitely a lot of people who thought that I was I was pretty crazy. Um, I think pretty, you know, kind of delusional. Or I, I would say, you know, the more you know, kind of typical 
reaction would be, okay, you know, this is just kind of a phase, right? Like, okay, you know, Daniel will go and he'll, he'll try this out for a few months and then, you know, he'll come back and, you know, we'll, we'll see him in class, you know, next, next semester. Right. So, so I think, which honestly I was, I, I was perfectly, I think, accepting of too, you know, I had no clue, you know, whether this had any potential, had any legs. Uh, and so for me, I initially did just take, you know, a leave of absence from university. Uh, I guess uh, I'm technically still on, on leave, you know, 10 years, 10 years later. But, you know, it's, it's, it's one of these things where you, you just got to, you know, take, take a bit of a leap. And at the time, you know, I, I definitely did benefit from the fact that my university had a flexible policy where, you know, they would welcome you back. You want to take six months to go do a project, no problem give it a shot, you know, if not come back. And I think that helped certainly my parents and, and, and some other folks kind of, you know, get, get, get a bit more, if not, you know, comfortable, at least outright rejecting of, of, of the, of the, uh, uh, my, my, my plan and, and my ambition. But yeah, you know, in, in, in this case, um, you know, I was able to just kind of keep pulling at the thread and keep, you know, finding more and more things to kind of keep me, you know, moving in, in the direction that ultimately led to, to where I am today. You know, I think it's 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 because of that initial leap that uh, all of this has uh, come to fruition. What what do you think, in your experience, can be kind of learned from the Silicon Valley system and transplanted to African venture, and what doesn't transfer at all? Like, I'm sure there are things on both ends. I think what. Silicon Valley has done overall, or at least, you know, stereotypically is uh, known for is this idea of the meritocracy from the point of view that if you have an idea that is getting traction now, I, I mean, there's a lot of things and, and I think this is, I say stereotype because I actually do think that you know, a lot of this signaling effect, okay, did you go to Harvard? Did you go to Stanford? And, you know, is your background, do you look like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and all that? You know, I think, I think there's a lot more, you know, rightful discussion around, you know, these, the, these kinds of pattern matching that I think is, is actually, you know, not necessarily representative of, of true, uh, you know, entrepreneurial potential and, and success. But at least in theory, this idea that, you know, any kid in a garage, you know, can come up with that idea and, uh, you know, if he or she, you know, gets gets a, an MVP going and sees traction, that uh, you know there are people who are willing to take a bet on 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 that kid, you know, in a way that uh, say you know uh, 50 years ago uh, wouldn't be possible because in order to get you know any kind of investment back then, you would have you know had to have a nice suit and gray hair and go into a bank and you know present a full five year business plan with a profitable audited financials and, and, you know, the, this idea of a kind of like a venture ecosystem was, was, was still quite limited uh, until, until the past, uh, you know, 20, uh, 20, 30 years or so. Uh, and certainly when we kind of look at the, the African investment ecosystem, the vast majority of it still looks like the traditional, whether it's banking led or, 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 you know, PE led uh, kind of, kind of investment, which is much more still buttoned up been running a business for decades and you know have have had these audited financials and these relationships and this you know cv and whatnot and so i think taking the recognizing that the the opportunities for entrepreneurial disruption and talent are really in the youth and that's you know 
quadruply the case when you look at Africa, because you know the vast majority of the population it falls into that category. I mean, the median age of nineteen, you know, tells you everything you need to know, which is you know how how can we expect you know old gray hair men to innovate and you know create products that are going to be you know loved by by the population. Uh, there, there's so many years you know, kind of far out from, from where the actual population really is. Um, so I think that idea of the, the, the pure or the ideal, at least, of, kind of meritocracy where, you know, anyone can kind of work an idea. I think, I think the, the collaborative spirit as well um, is, is something that I think is, is, is very important. And I've definitely experienced it both in Silicon Valley and in, in my time primarily in East Africa, which is, you know, just this kind of open community where anything that you can do to help anyone, um, you know, that that is, is, is what's encouraged and that's what's rewarded in the community and in the kind of value system that, that exists without kind of keeping score or kind of expecting, you know, uh, immediate payback. Um, you know, you just kind of you give forward and, and, and you expect things to come around. Um, and I think we've, we've definitely seen that, you know, just in, 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 in the kind of cycles of the ecosystem, at least, that, that I've been a part of so far. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that uh, recently Brighter Bridges released some data on the fundraising climate last year. And of course, overall, the message is funding declined quite significantly. But one of the interesting data points to me is the count of early stage deals actually increased in Africa in 2023. And I think that talks to what you've said there is you're starting to see a little bit more appetite at those earlier stages accelerators moving in, localizing with more talent, with founders who are achieving success, getting some liquidity, whether that's in an acquisition or, or a secondary round and putting that back into the ecosystem, which I think is super encouraging. And we're going to chat about fundraising a little bit later in the episode, but I'd love to hear about some of the beginning of the journey. You mentioned that you pivoted quite a bit between starting the business, the assumptions you had based on those early days in Egypt and what you ultimately ended up building at Wasoko, what were some of those really impactful market dynamics or learnings that shifted how you built out the business and product? Yes, uh, great, great question. So in, in terms of the trajectory and the, the pivots in the business, I would say the, the real big one was the original idea that I had being in Egypt and, and being a, a software uh, person by background was, okay, I'm just going to have this pure digital platform that's going to enable ordering from the shop. And then the digital platform will connect the shop with the supplier. And anything to do with the actual logistics or, you know, on-ground operations, you know, that's, that's, that, that'll be handled separately by the, uh, you know, between the supplier and the shop themselves. That, that, that's not, uh, you know, anything, uh, you know, I want to get involved with. That kind of nice digital only, you know, product vision uh, kind of met a hard reality once we we actually kind of got going with our, our first partnerships, and so um, we we had some invitations to, to 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 launch our systems initially in Kenya with with some companies uh, over here, and and that's how the idea really got challenged and, and, and ultimately uh, failed, uh, at least in its, in its pilot version, because what ended up happening was orders were being placed, but then the distributors for the manufacturers were supposed to be actually taking the products, kind of seeing the orders coming in and then uh, 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 routing themselves to go deliver. 
um, were not doing so, um, at least nowhere near reliably as, um, as they needed to be to actually make the kind of platform function. And so that was really kind of critical juncture for us because I think once again, faced another key, key point of just being completely unqualified to, 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 to do anything, uh, which was, okay, it, it seems like this logistics is a big, a big kind of blocker that needs to be figured out to really make, you know, this type of ordering solution actually valuable and, and solving the customer pain point. And so if the distributor themselves is not going to be able to take this on, then, you know, is, is it worth actually giving it a shot ourselves, which was a pretty crazy thing to think. Um, but I managed to kind of set up a small pilot operation of like a two bedroom apartment that was cleared out with just like boxes of soap and chewing gum to be pre-positioned and ready to deliver, you know, when, when those orders came in and got some, got some help, got some support by some great, you know, local, local uh, operations managers who, who, you know, kind of helped make sure that our team of, of, of delivery people on foot with backpacks uh, would be ready to go once those orders came in. And we ran that pilot for a couple of months and, and it was actually a success. And what, what we ended up then kind of building on from there was okay. I guess we really have to figure out how to do this stuff. You know, how do you actually set up a, a large warehouse and, you know, proper delivery operations and, you know, negotiate all these contracts and manage inventory and, and whatnot. Uh, and so there were, there were many, many kind of mistakes uh, and learnings uh, over the, the following years from that process. But ultimately, that, that, that's still the model that we have today. And thankfully, we, we now have people who are much, much better than myself uh, at, at running all of these uh, intricate parts of the operation. Yeah, once again, it just kind of came from hitting a wall and, and, and realizing that, okay, this, uh, this direction is not working. Looks like that's the way to go. Um, don't know anything about it, but you know, we'll figure it out as we go along. I love that story of pre-positioning the product in an apartment. That's that's awesome. That's scrappy. I love it. That also kind of talks a little bit about or speaks a little bit to what you were talking about earlier where you said companies in Silicon Valley are pretty much digital only. At this point, if you're not a SaaS company, getting venture funding is pretty difficult, which is hilarious. Nicole and I talk about that a lot. Like that's, that's not the roots of Silicon Valley, but that's all they think about now. So it almost sounds like what you're talking about really is getting more to the roots of what venture capital is supposed to be. It's not a 2%, if you're lucky, iteration on a software product bringing efficiencies. It's completely changing someone's day-to-day life. And very few software companies can do that. Maybe people could say Uber has in a big city, but not many others. So that's really interesting. Is that kind of how you see or what you see the need for in Africa now? Completely. I, I think, you know, if you're looking for really transformative, you know, not, you know, you know, 2%, uh, you know, changes to, you know, business as usual, but, you know, kind of 200% changes to business as usual, then I think, you know, those opportunities abound, right? You know, more or less kind of every major part of the economy that, that you know, you look at, you know, has these opportunities for true, you know, transformation and, and, and improvement that can really, really, you know, materially change people's lives. And, and I think, for, for, for our customers, you know, the difference between, you know, pressing a few buttons on an app and having, you know, 
uh, rice, soap, Coca-Cola, whatever, like magically appear at your doorstep as opposed to, as I said before, having to like physically go yourself uh, all the way across town and like pick up these these goods at a bunch of different like dingy Costco's like this, this is a, this is a, this is a totally different, you know, way of uh, uh, doing business. And, you know, as I said, serving your community. And then of course, uh, you know, the other things that we're now building on the back of that to enable financing for these, for these shops, um, payments uh, and, and a number of other things that, that are in the works is just kind of the, 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 the additional layers that become possible once you kind of do the hard work and, and, and set up, you know, this initial infrastructure and network as well. So I think, you know, that the, these kinds of transformative opportunities abound and, you know, it really just kind of takes, uh, you know, some, some, some going and, and, and looking for them and really kind of deep diving to, to understand the intricacies and, you know, why things are the way they are today. Cause you know, there, there's always, uh, always a reason and, and the logic of that. And, you know, where is there an opportunity to kind of, you know, cross pollinate and, and kind of take, um, you know, new technologies or, or new capabilities and, and really use that to, you know, transform and, and ultimately make, make people's lives better. It makes me think of a conversation I was having with a founder a few years ago who built an asset financing business in East Africa. And he was saying that it was really tough because when speaking to international investors, they couldn't understand this need for a hybrid or omni-channel or offline type of distribution network. And so he had to position with them that this is an asset light model where they don't need boots on the ground and they acquire customers through referral partnerships with Bolt and Uber, right? Where in the reality, you're going to the community associations where there's a chief or, you know, the king of the Buddha Buddha association and one by one you're willing and winning trust. And in time that creates a sort of network effect as people trust your product. And I think, where it's coming from is VCs have gotten this idea that asset life models are more scalable in some way, and that's the way they're going to realize returns. So I'm curious because Wasoko has grown incredibly well over the past 10 or so years that you've been doing this. How do you think about scale in the context of an African startup? I would say that, you know, certainly this idea that, uh, you know, the only way you can scale is through, you know, pure digital distribution or, or something like that is, you know, pretty, pretty nonsense. Uh, and in a lot of verticals, I think impossible, you know, when it comes to different sectors of, of the, the African economy. I mean, the reality is that these are you know, trust-based societies, right? And and the the social fabric that exists is you know far more ingrained in people's day-to-day lives than what you see maybe these days in in, in the global north. And so you know pe- people don't uh, you know Google or look up on Yelp uh, you know when they need a plumber, they call up their mom or their aunt or their friends and they say, hey, do you know any good plumbers? And then you know that it's it's all based off of of that. Uh, and 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 so. And, and people do that not necessarily out of uh, a burden or they don't dislike it. It's actually, it, it's, it's this, the kind of having this knowledge and, and knowing about services or having contacts that can be valuable is actually a, a sort of social currency. Like that, that's what brings you value in, in a community because you can kind of connect people with resources that are helpful. Um, and so this idea that like somehow you would like disconnect 
and like just somehow figure it out on your own, you know, just by, you know, using the internet or something is, is, is something that I think is a, is, is a very kind of foreign concept. And so, you know, certainly in our business, we, we continue to rely exclusively uh, actually on a, a, our own sales force going out into communities and, and signing up shops to, to join our platform. And, you know, while that might sound somewhat crazy, I think anybody who is familiar with uh, how, you know, onboarding was done for, say, restaurant delivery apps in the U.S. and all that, you know, obviously they still relied on, uh, you know, huge uh, field forces to, to, to sign up restaurants, get them uh, established whatnot as well. Uh, you know, the big difference, obviously, is like these are economies that have a surplus of workers, um, especially at that, you know, entry or kind of blue collar level. Um, and so for us, there is no digital channel that can reach all of these mom and pop stores. You know, they're not on on, on, on kind of Twitter, you know, looking for apps that they can download that are going to, you know, magically start delivering them things. You know, these are these are shopkeepers who have never used any e-commerce service in their life whatsoever. So, you know, if someone, you know, showed up to you at your shop today that you've been running for 20 years or, or even worse, let's say, let's say you had an ad that kind of popped up and said, hey, we're going to deliver you stuff, you know, no way. Um, you know, it, it actually usually takes... Uh, one of our, our reps, you know, two to three times of actually stopping getting to know shopkeeper and, 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 and explaining to them that, hey, this is not a scam. Like <laughs> the, the, you just place an order, use this app, you place an order and, and the goods come. And, you know, even, you know, some of the adjustments, the adaptations that you have to make, um, you know, uh, versus say e-commerce in, in the US or in Europe where everybody's, you know, uh, swiping or paying with a, a credit card up front on their order and then it uh, gets delivered three days later by uh, by UPS or, or, or DHL. In these markets, people won't pay until you deliver because once again, you know, trust-based and, you know, if I don't know you, I don't know your service, then no way. And and that's fine. Uh, you yeah, that That's not something that fundamentally inhibits the business model. But, you know, for someone who is, let's say, unacquainted with the markets, you know, I think these are all things that kind of appear as somehow, you know, red flags or, or you know, there's like kind of certain buzzwords. And I think what, uh, what you mentioned in terms of, uh, you know, uh, being asset light, uh, it's like, ooh, well, if you have too many people or you have too much of, you have inventory, you have, you know, delivery trucks or whatever, then, oh, no, 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 there's, there's no way that's going to work. And, you know, I think to me, it's very much the opposite. It's like, well, if you don't have that, then it's definitely not going to work. Um, and, and if you do have it and you build it well, it actually becomes your defensible asset like that that is because what 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 africa fundamentally needs is infrastructure and and infrastructure is having real assets real capabilities that others don't have and that enable you know in this case commerce trade supply chains and you know if 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 nobody actually has the trucks then what good is it mean to have a platform that's connecting, you know, logistics are, it's useless, right? So I, I think, I think this is, uh, to me, really where the, the, the kind of misconceptions, uh, you know, have come into play over the years. And I think I've always been kind of very adamant, to, you know, about what it's going to take to build and scale up our business. And there's definitely been a lot of investors along the way who, um, you know, I think did, did, didn't quite follow and, uh, you know, as a result, didn't get involved. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm thankful for the ones that, that did. We've kind of proven uh, what's possible, uh, you know, following uh, following that vision. Yeah, that's awesome. I have a couple couple thoughts on that. The first is, I bet that those 
investors who didn't invest early, you're now on their anti-portfolio where they're like, oh, shoot, I missed it. So that's cool. That's uh, that's a cool place to be, I'm sure. But the second question, you were kind of starting to answer, and it sounds like you, you might have been starting to flesh out, but what do you think it will take for the average venture investor who still is, for the most part, European, American, and now starting to be also Southeast Asian. I would say those are kind of the three. What what do you think it'll take for them to see the African market as viable for a portion of their funding? Do you think explaining more about building that moat through the trust relationships is part of it? Or, or what what do you think it will take? I think the reality is, you know, we need to we need to have the big actions. Showing people the money is 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 always going to be the most critical step, you know, when it when it comes to, to driving more investment. We are getting there. Um, it's 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 uh, been a journey for sure, um, but I, I am confident that you know we are part of the the first wave, the the the, the fundamental. Uh, uh, generation that that will catalyze the 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 future cohorts of companies uh, to really kind of take off and, and build on top of uh, you know I think a lot of the pioneering work that that has been done over the past decade. I think what what gives me um, you know optimism and excitement about that is I think the first wave is actually where the most foundational and iconic companies and established companies ultimately come from, right? So if you look at, so in the U.S., you know, uh, uh, well, U.S. is uh, an interesting example because obviously we have tech firms going all the way back to, you know, say Hewlett Packard, you know, levels and many generations there. But maybe if you look at, say, the Chinese ecosystem, right? And, and you know, Alibaba, which got started, you know, in, in the late 90s, which was like a crazy time to think about, you know, doing anything internet tech related in, in China and, you know, if you've uh, followed anything that, that that Jack Ma has talked about over the years, um, you know it was it was absolutely insane uh, what they were trying to do at the time. Um, but the fact that they persevered and they kept going, and you know, you know, I don't I don't know worth a half a trillion dollars or something like that, and they basically power everything in the ecosystem, right? You know, you have you have all sorts of different Alibaba, you know, e-commerce uh, uh, sites and, and and companies combined with Alipay, which is basically the payment system, along with with WeChat Pay for 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 the entire economy, combined with you know logistics capabilities, combined uh, with cross border capabilities, and it is you know all of these these companies that kind of figured it out and 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 really kind of pioneered and uh, you know built built the built the rails you know with blood sweat and tears uh, to then enable the next uh, generation of companies to come in after. Uh, I think just get kind of further cemented and and, and supported and, and and grow as well, you know, with 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 those future generations. So, you know, e- even though I think this is the the hardest time uh, uh, to 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 build a a startup or a scale up in, in Africa, you know, I think it's we're doing it now so that it becomes easier uh, for you know the companies that get started, you know, next year, five years from now, ten years from now, and you know, if if just uh, you know, a couple of us, um, I think, make it. Then, I think there really will be a, a catalytic cycle where uh, you'll start to see that flywheel of um, experience 
with capital, with actual services infrastructure that, that enable other companies to be built on top. Um, and so that's what I'm super excited to be a part of, uh, both now at Wasogo as well as you know, looking forward to for decades to come. I mean, you've managed to raise significant funding, including from global heavyweight funds like Tiger Global. What do you think you got right in the fundraising process? And other than a belief in your vision, do you think that the investors that did decide to come on board had anything in common? I would, I would say once again, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely fortunate to, I think, have the, uh, the background that I have, you know, having grown up in the U.S. in California, um, gone to a school that, that, that had actually an active angel investor network. I mean, my, my first investors were angels from, from the University of Chicago. And, you know, that, that's something that unfortunately is still, you know, quite limited, you know, when, when it comes to, uh, say, you know, raising funding as a, as a local founder um, in, say, Kenya or, or in, you know, Nigeria or other markets where it's, 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 it's grown tremendously. But uh, certainly if you go back, you know, five, seven years, um, there were very few angels that were writing checks, uh, you know, locally. And even to this day, I think it's, it's far, far less than, than it ideally should be. And so having the networks that, you know, connected me to the, the largest pools of capital in the world, which for better or worse sit in, in, in the United States still and, and you know, some other parts of, um, of, uh, of the world. And having, I think, kind of built the bridge and understood kind of both perspectives, right? I mean, this, what we're doing is by no means, I'd say intuitive to you know, an investor based in New York. Uh, but you know, when I sit down uh, with big funds there, I say, hey, so, you know, picture the bodega, you know, down the street. So imagine if, you know, there was no Doritos truck that came and resupplied that shop every day. And if that shopkeeper had to go get their own Doritos from, you know, a Costco out in Queens and had to transport it back and blah, 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 all this stuff. And, you know, try to kind of localize and actually explain in in concepts and terms that, you know, are actually kind of uh, fundamental, uh, fundamentally, uh, you know, comprehensible to, 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 to that audience. And, you know, put that market into perspective such that, you know, it is something that can actually be kind of grasped and, and, and then, you know, where the fundamentals um, are, are the same is, is definitely when it comes to the numbers, right? So, you know, you got to have strong numbers regardless, right? Obviously, uh, you know, by the time you're, 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 you're raising, you know, $100 million from Tiger Global and, and, and from some of these other big VCs, you know, this is not... Uh, you know, ideas on a whiteboard, right? This is this is real hard numbers that are you know as good as you know any other global uh, investment opportunity that they have, right? Because they're global investment. They're you know they fundamentally they 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 um, they want to find the best investments globally, and you know there's 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 no you know kind of uh, you know there's no kind of lower standard for um, uh, for anything that 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 they're looking at. So I think you know that that's something that. Obviously, I think we've delivered on over time to 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 be able to uh, raise capital from uh, you know some of these, these these larger global funds, and is you know something that I think continuing to to kind of focus on in order to kind of demonstrate uh, both to future investors and I think you know for the ecosystem at large that hey this is this is this these are real markets that that are worth caring about you know hopefully uh, if we're able to, to to go the distance with it then as I said. Uh, that can unlock and catalyze uh, that much more uh, to come into the ecosystem as well. Yeah, that that is very interesting and can probably 
especially in the earlier conversations, be a difficult thing to explain? And how did you explain that? The kind of difference between there is quite a bit of opportunities as far as grants, and there's a lot of donations. You're like, that's not what this is. This is a business. And that can be a big hill to get over for, for some of these people in New York or in Palo Alto that, wait, you can have a business outside of New York or Palo Alto. I mean, even in, in the central part of the U.S., there's almost no venture funding. It's hard to make that case. So how do you make that case for Africa at that really early stage? It, it's a great question. I think at the super early stage, you're, you're definitely... And actually, at, at all stages, I think you're you're constantly filtering for 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 interest and for fit, right? So you know, I would never advise anyone, you know, with a with an African tech startup to just you know fly to the U.S. and 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 and, and try to talk to angels or VCs on a general basis, right? I think you know you you want to make sure that you know these are people who are going to have some connection to what it is that you're working on and, you know, ideally have some familiarity with the geography, even if it's as tenuous as like, Oh, I visited there on safari once, um, which is obviously not a, uh, <laughs> not an in-depth, uh, you know, market exploration, but at least, you know, I found helps to break the ice and kind of get people into the frame of mind of, you know, what it is that, uh, uh, that, that, uh, that, that we're doing. And so I think, you know, in the early days, it's, it's, it's about figuring out, you know, what investors, what network, you know, is actually going to give you some uh, overlap, some affinity be- between what you're doing and, and, and the investor's worldview. But, you know, if, if the investor is just, you know, completely unfamiliar with, with the landscape whatsoever, then I think you're going to have a hard a hard shot, um, you know, making that work. So, you know, thankfully, I I did benefit from having, you know, a number of, of early investors who, um, you know, had uh, spent time uh, in the continent, uh, were from the continent, uh, you know, had and, and who had kind of uh, social circles and networks where they were able to kind of influence and pull in other other individuals to to help drive that um, as well. You know, definitely the the kind of education never stops, um, and so you know, and and uh, you know, I think you you never should as well. I think maybe it can sometimes uh, feel a bit repetitive and and frustrating to kind of like explain you know the same kind of basic things over and over. Um, but you know, I think I think that's what we need to do uh, to ultimately you know get the uh, uh, get the message out there and and um, uh, and and change perceptions. Um, and, uh, you know, every, every, you know, concrete step of progress, um, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, bigger uh, rounds that are made, you know, bigger profile investors that are getting involved, um, you know, helps, uh, but ultimately, you know, I think we want to get back to that, uh, that, that, that big end goal of, of having some, some major, major exits as well. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's what we're working on. I mean, changing track a little bit, you recently announced a merger with another pretty well-known startup in the African landscape, Max uh, AV. Can you tell us a little bit how that partnership started and how you guys discovered the synergy between your two companies? 
Absolutely. So we're very fortunate in that the the, the MaxAb founders uh, and myself have have known each other since since the beginning of their business. Um, so they they they've been around for uh, about five six years um, at this point. Had uh, had the opportunity uh, actually to even kind of come down and and visit us um, as uh, as they were getting started. And uh, so you know we've been trading notes uh, more or less since the beginning and even. Uh, had a number of shared investors and the same investor lead our respective seed rounds. So I think, you know, there, there's a lot to kind of uh, support, you know, our kind of parallel trajectories um, as we were kind of building out uh, this business model in different regions. So them in North Africa and us uh, primarily in East Africa. And I think, you know, one of the, 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 the biggest things is just, you know, at a certain point, you know, you kind of recognize that, you know, in order to really get the capabilities to, to, to reach the full potential of the business, which is, you know, for us focused on how do we help, you know, as many uh, communities and, 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 and small businesses across Africa as possible, that you can go at it alone and, and just, you know, organically and try to figure out, okay, how do we get into uh, Egypt? How do we get into Morocco and, and try to figure out these markets? Or, you know, you can, you can partner up with, uh, with, with people who, have been doing it and doing it well and, and who, who you have a strong relationship with and respect. And, and ultimately, you know, if those dynamics are, are, are right, do something that I think is, is, is truly transformational. So in our case, you know, the, the you know, largest tech merger that's ever happened in Africa, I'm, you know, super excited about, I think, what this represents, not just for us in terms of giving us, you know, that much larger uh, base and capabilities, but also I think, you know, for, for, for the ecosystem too, uh, you know, kind of representing, uh, you know, one of the the the, the pathways for for how to try to uh, for how to to, to scale up and, and kind of reach new markets and new areas. Uh, you know, you 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 don't uh, have to do it all yourself. <laughs> I, I would highly advise against it because I think you know even just uh, building up a business to uh, to scale in, in kind of one region um, is quite difficult. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, for us, um, uh, we're, we're super excited. Uh, couldn't, couldn't, couldn't be more thrilled uh, to be to be working with, you know, our new uh, uh, team members from from Egypt. And uh, yeah, uh, you know, I expect that this will allow us to go that much further in our in our shared vision. Yeah, and I uh, I won't have you, you know, answer this on the call, but I I wonder if in your future. From the largest tech merger, we eventually see the largest IPO from Africa. That could be that could be cool down the road. Um, so we'll we'll be watching that. What is next? What is next for for both companies now that they are combining resources? Yeah. So what I could say at this point is, you know, we're we're, we're continuing to kind of build out and expand both in our existing markets um, as as well as looking uh, at new ones. We're also kind of particularly interested in building more capabilities and services um, uh, to layer on um, the the core e-commerce business that we already have. So I mentioned currently we do some some merchant financing. Uh, we have some some kind of early payments products as well. We, we want to really build on that and and and, and offer you know kind of even more uh, capabilities, kind of help our shops and their communities grow with uh, with Wasoko. And so, yeah, I think um, uh, you know it's going to be a really exciting period of of you know innovation and kind of cross pollination, especially uh, given you know both teams. I think you know have 
uh, very complementary strengths, and, and and so being able to kind of bring together the best uh, from both sides is 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 has been hugely rewarding so far. And uh, yeah, you know, use that to, to 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 build you know the biggest business possible, and you know help uh, as many of these uh, businesses uh, across the continent as we can. It's an amazing story in some ways that you were first inspired by going to Egypt on a study abroad program all those years ago, right? And then end up merging with an Egyptian company. That's quite, you know, there's a romantic love story in there in there somewhere. But I think it's great to see, especially, you know, last year we saw especially B2B commerce startups in Africa fall out of favor in the venture community. The once darling, you know, we've all read the headlines. So I'm curious about your outlook for this sector. Do you think there's a renewal coming like what have you figured out that others haven't you know what's your outlook for the years ahead it's a great question and and i think uh beyond uh you know the 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 kind of uh cyclical cycles that i think venture reflects and that you know you have uh certain businesses or models that kind of come into favor and then uh, that the, the cycle out uh you know what i'd say is distribution of goods to informal retailers is not a new business. It's been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and it's not a small business either. So as I said, you know, $800 billion a year, and that's not charity. Um, and back to your earlier point, right? You know, these are, you know, the, the, the people who are moving the rice, the soap, the toilet paper, whatever around to, you know, these 10 million shops in Africa today. Uh, they're not doing it, you know, because they're, they they got a grant, you know, from from USAID or 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 they're working for the UN. Like these are these are hustlers, these are traders, uh, wholesalers, whoever who who are making money doing that. You know, I think our thesis, uh, you know, from a from a business and and uh, you know a profit point of view is you have these ten million shops millions uh, and hundreds of thousands of distributors and wholesalers and whatnot in those kind of layers and chains above them that are all working on pencil and paper, no visibility, no tooling, no digitization, no optimization on how these goods are getting to market right now. It has to be the case that by aggregating and implementing technology to digitize these supply chains that there is additional profit to be gained on top of what is already a profitable industry that has been around for thousands of years. So I think, you know, from, from, from that kind of standing point, um, you know, I don't think that, you know, the need uh, or the pain points of, of what we're solving are, are going away anytime soon. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, fundamentally, if you just look at the, the basic growth trends of, uh, you know, basic consumption of consumer goods in Africa is is growing even faster than the population because it's also a reflection of rising incomes as well. Uh, that that demand for goods is going to have to be solved by supply chains, by logistics, and that's going to require and going to be best done, you know, by technology enabled companies that that that, that are running those. So, you know, while uh, you know we, we we might not be in the in the heady days of you know 2021. You know, I don't think that the prospects um, for you know this particular sector are, are any less than than any other sector. In fact, I think that the prospects for this sector remain by far one of the strongest uh, in Africa. Because you know, point to anything else, um, and you know, it's 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 a smaller proportion of GDP and a smaller proportion of actual kind of fundamental consumption in in, in the economy. 
Uh, and so I'm, I'm sure uh, that even if it's not us, that uh, distribution and supplying of essential goods uh, to the African market is, is going to be a, a big part of the economy for many, many years to come. Yeah, that that is a perfect place to end. We're getting close to time, but I do have one more question for you that I've been wondering. And you said you were studying abroad in Egypt to learn Arabic. That's not typical. How many languages do you speak? I speak eight languages. Man, what are they? So uh, English, Arabic, uh, Swahili, uh, which is spoken here in East Africa, uh, Mandarin, uh, Cantonese, Uh uh, Spanish, French, and Portuguese. Man. To ask, I mean, you clearly love complex problem solving. You love adventure. Where does the love for language come in? Well, I think I think it's it's absolutely part of the adventure. It's part of I think for me, cultural exploration is where I find some of the the, the most fascinating and and delightful parts of life. Um, so I, I I kind of put that box, you know, more than you know, say climbing mountains or anything like that, which uh, I'm, I'm ashamed to say I've, I've been in, in the region for, uh, you know, eight, nine years, still haven't done Kilimanjaro or, or any of those. But, you know, I have, I've spent a lot of time, you know, whether it's learning Swahili or, or, or uh, you know, even working on some of the other local languages in the different countries that we're in right now. Um, and I think the experiences and the value um, that, that that's, you know, supported for me, even in just, you know, being able to have conversations with our customers and understand, you know, how they're uh, interacting with our services, what we can do better. Um, you know, those are things that, you know, not only are professionally, I think, quite, um, quite important, but, but personally, uh, extremely fulfilling as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Daniel, thanks for the time. This has been uh, a really fascinating conversation. What's what's the last quick piece of advice you would give to anyone not that is thinking about building a startup in Africa because that's a standard question, but anyone who's thinking about investing in Africa, what advice would you give them? Come out. Come get on the ground, get in the market talk to real users, real customers, you know, don't just do your, your armchair research. You know, that, that, that ultimately is a, a very, very limited part of the picture. And, you know, there's no substitute for, for actually talking to people and understanding their worldviews and, and pain points firsthand. Awesome. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That's it for today. Do you want to learn more about investment opportunities in Africa? Go to nextfrontierpod.com for more episodes, new insights, and the latest trends in the African startup world.